0: Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Yeah, good to be with you guys today. We're going to be in Psalm seventy-three today, uh, so you can grab your Bibles and uh, start making your way there. Uh, one of my, this is one of my favorite psalms. Um, it might be my, my actually might be my favorite psalm. Um, just the way it speaks to my heart, the way uh, the the writer is so vulnerable and transparent. It's really, it's really powerful. So I'm excited to share it through this psalm today. Uh, so before we dive in and spend some time looking at this text, uh, let's pray. Uh, let's ask God to be with us to guide our conversation, to uh, allow these words to impact our heart. Let's pray together. Father, uh, thanks so much for this time together. Uh, it is a joy to open your word as a church family, to see uh, your words um, in, this, in these scriptures that have been directed towards our heart. So as you have moved through this right, our Lord, it impacts us deeply. Uh, so we're so grateful for this time. Thanks that we can join together in worship, uh, lifting praises to your name. And so, Lord, as we now come to this time, open up our hearts, God. Uh, speak to us, allow your spirit to use these words to impress deep truths into our heart. Uh, God, allow me to share what is right, what is true, what is honorable to you. And God, in this time, may you be glorified in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, Well, it doesn't feel like it was that long ago that I was in elementary school. And I was actually doing some math here. And it was about 30 years ago that I was an elementary school student. Um, That makes me feel really old. Like, I I can't believe that was 30 years ago uh, that, that I was in elementary school. So probably somewhere around third grade or so. So I'm eight or nine years old. And when I was when I was going through this time of my life, one of the things I looked forward to was the scholastic book fair. I don't know if you guys remember the book fair. Is that still a thing? Does the book fair still exist? Okay, so that was so it's old. So you know how old it is at least now. Um, but that was a highlight for me. I loved going to the library, seeing all the the, the selections that. The publisher would bring. Um, I was, at that time of my life, I was a big goosebumps guy. So I couldn't wait to see what new goosebumps was being released. R.L. Stein captured my imagination. Uh, So I couldn't wait to see that. So I I loved it. It was a highlight. And I remember one year, and and I'm thinking it was somewhere around third grade, that I saw a book that I hadn't seen before. And it was called Magic Eye A New Way of Looking at the World. I'm not sure if you remember this book or not, but it was a book of optical illusions. Um, so this book in particular had, um, it, it looked a bit chaotic, honestly, just colors and lines kind of all woven together. Um, there wasn't really a rhyme or reason. So if you're just looking at the picture just at face value, it's probably really confusing. Like, what is this? What is this trying to communicate? But, it, but, but what you had to do is you had to like refocus your eyes and see through the page. And as you did that, you noticed certain images popping out. So some of these illusions might be 3D. So you might see a, a shark jumping out of the page or uh, a spaceship or maybe it's a, a galaxy or something like that. You saw this coming through uh, the pages. And it was mind-boggling to me that you could kind of refocus your eyes, maybe tilt the book or tilt the page a little bit, and you saw an image there that you hadn't seen before. The perspective or the focus you had really impacted that. That also led me down a rabbit hole of being really into other optical illusions as well, mainly images that looked one way if you looked at it from, a, from one angle, but again, if you looked at it from reverse or you tilted the page upside down or tilted the book upside down or maybe looked at a different angle or tilted it in front of you, you would see something completely different. That, that's, the, that's the nature of an optical illusion, right? To, it, it, you see something that you hadn't seen before. And the perspective in which we view those illusions really impacts what we see or don't see on the page. So perspective is important. Well, I think when it comes to life itself, I think perspective is important. How we view, how we engage with one another is in a large part determined by our perspective, how we view a person, how we view ourselves, and, and maybe even how we view the Lord. And so perspective is interesting. Perspective is important. See, our perspective on life greatly impacts the way that we think, the way we behave, even can impact the way we worship. See, our perspective can cause us to become bitter or to see our blessings. Our perspective in life can cause us to be greedy or allow us to be grateful. Our perspective can cause us to live in despair or our perspective can uh, cause us to be joyful Our perspective can cause us to be self-indulgent, or it can allow us to be sacrificial. What we choose to focus on, the perspective that we have greatly impacts who we are as people. What do we focus on? What is our perspective? Because that tells us a lot about who we are as people. Well, in our text today, we're going to learn about a man who was in critical danger of allowing an unrighteous perspective to totally derail his life. He was, in, he was in great danger, and he'll let us into his life a little bit as we walk through this psalm. And so through our text, we're going to notice a three-phase progression. This this man goes through three phases. The first phase is this. He is a man in crisis. That's phase one. Phase two is a man of confession. And finally, phase three is a man of contempt. We're going to notice this as we track his Journey. So let's read in Psalm 73. We're going to start by reading the first 15 verses of this text. And we'll notice a little bit of insight uh, into our writer. He says this, Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked." For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out with fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftedly, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. And all in vain I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. We're going to notice first that the man that we're looking at is a man in crisis. And we learn from this superscription that the testimony that we see in Psalm 73 was written by a man named Asaph. Asaph was a gifted musician. He was a Levite appointed by David to lead the nation of Israel in worship. By all accounts, Asaph is a godly man who wanted to glorify God with his gifts and uh, talents and abilities, leading the entire nation in the glory of God through worship. And we can see that right out of the gate in in verse 1, Asaph loves the Lord. We know where Asaph's heart is. We see that he says, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. We We see where Asaph's heart is. And interestingly, although this is the way the psalm starts, this is actually the conclusion that Asaph comes to. So we're going to notice Asaph's journey, but ultimately he lands on, his conclusion is, okay, God is good. And to those who are pure in heart, to those who love him, God is good. And as he begins writing, we're going to notice a a series of difficult crises that that meet Asaph where he is. It's a crisis of faith that we see. And then evidently this was so hard. Evidently the, the blows that life was giving him we were hitting so hard that he actually said, My feet nearly slipped. I had almost stumbled, is what Asaph said. Imagine a boxer in a boxing ring. They're going toe to toe, and the lands are just, or the, 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 the punches are landing in the chin, they're landing in the gut, they're, the uppercuts are hitting in the nose, and, and the boxer just can't wait for the round to be over. When's the bell going to ring? This is kind of where Asaph is at. And he said, My feet had nearly slipped. I had almost. Stumbled. Well, what's going on in Asaph's life as we identify the agony he's going through? Well, we notice that Asaph's going through a crisis. I think there are two crises that we can identify in this text. The first one is a crisis of jealousy. We see this in Asaph's heart. We notice this in verse 3. Asaph claims to be envious of the arrogant, of the wicked, because of how they seem to be prospering. It's a crisis of jealousy. At this moment, he thought that the wicked people who were living in the lap of luxury and, 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 and experiencing all this success, were, it just wasn't making sense for Asaph. It wasn't computing. It didn't, it didn't jive up with him. Right? That doesn't make sense. How can evil people have so much prosperity? See, in his mind, in Asaph's mind, they should be experiencing wrath and retribution, They should be experiencing some kind of suffering, but instead, they're actually facing something quite different. They're actually facing something pleasant. There's no mention of suffering in their life at this point at all. They're living fat rather than being starved. Instead of being enslaved or imprisoned, they're living free. In fact, Asaph says they're not even experiencing any pangs. Pangs in the original language would be a fetter or a bond. They're not experiencing any kind of restriction whatsoever. Instead of weakness, they're experiencing strength. And instead of trouble, they're experiencing a carefree life. And Asaph is jealous of this. Asaph at some level is desiring this. When I first read this, this idea of Asaph being jealous or envious is not the emotion that I expected. It, honestly, I, I, was, I was quite surprised. I had, had Asaph said he was angry, that would make sense to me. I'm, I'm mad. Like, why should they prosper? How, I, this doesn't make sense to me, but Asaph says that he's jealous. He's, he's jealous. He's envious of the prosperity of the wicked. In other words, Asaph wanted what the wicked had. And at the same time, on some level, Asaph also had become disillusioned with the ways in which God had been blessing his own life currently. He he wasn't thinking clearly. That's the the big idea with a a right perspective. It, It changes the way we think. It changes the way we behave. It changes how we interact with God. And isn't it interesting how an unrighteous perspective distorts the way we think? Because what does Asaph want? He wants the wicked to suffer. He wants them to know destruction. He wants them to know punishment. He wants them to know judgment. And at the same time, he says, I kind of want what they have. That doesn't make sense, right? It's a a distorted picture. He wants them to suffer, but he also wants what they have. This is how, this this idea, this thing that, that Asaph is writing to us about is a perfect example of how an unrighteous perspective changes the way that we think. And it was a distorted view of the wicked. Asaph had a distorted view of himself. Asaph also had a distorted view of who his God was at that moment. The whole picture, the whole book was blurry for Asaph. He, he couldn't see clearly for anything. It was, it was so blurry for him. But I think if we think real hard, actually, we probably don't have to think that hard. Even if we put a little thought into this, we kind of know how Asaph's feeling, don't we? We kind of know how Asaph feels. We understand what he's thinking. We know what it it feels like to see someone who's knowingly immoral find prosperity and success and just feel like, oh, that doesn't feel right. This seems unfair. This is is not right. This is unjust. We know what that feels like. We resonate with Asaph in that regard. And maybe perhaps we're even jealous to a degree. I kind of want that. That would feel good if I had that. Why don't I have that? How come I'm suffering and they seem to be prospering? And so we become a bit jealous of the wicked. But our jealousy doesn't end with just the wicked. Oftentimes, our jealousy or our envy can extend to even people who are morally neutral or even good or maybe even other Christ followers. Our jealousy can extend to other areas. And I think there's a few ways in which we see jealousy in our life. I think one of the ways we see jealousy in our, in our life is when celebrating with others is difficult or non-existent. That's a form of envy or jealousy in our own life. Well, how does this look in our life? Well, let, me, let me share maybe a few examples. This looks like when maybe someone you know gets the job promotion you applied for. You got passed over for a good friend or a, another coworker that you get along with, or maybe it's a family member. And instead of celebrating with them, being joyous for their success, joyous that they landed the promotion, you become standoff, standoffish and distant. That should have been my job. I know what they do. I see when they clock in. I see when they clock in. I know what their work ethic is like. It's not like me. I got things going. They don't have anything going. How did I get passed over? And we become envious. Or maybe it looks like this. It's, you're sitting next to a family in church who just seems to have it all together. They come in dressed to the nines. Kids are well-behaved. And then you look to your left and you see your crew. (laughs) And it looks like you just walked through a hurricane. (laughs) And your three boys are punching each other and talking in in church. And you know they know better. And then you think, why can't my kids be well-behaved like that family? Why can't my husband dress like that? Why can't my wife smile more like that wife over there? Why can't we have this, or why do we have to drive this 2014 Ty- Chrysler Town of Country when we really want the 2023 Ram 1500? <laughs> this is real for me, guys. <laughs> it's a form of jealousy. I want what they have. I am i can't live with what I have. This is just not good. And so instead of celebrating how other people are, maybe maybe this family just got some things going that that maybe we're lacking, and that, that's okay, but we can celebrate with others. And when that celebration is gone, we just can't celebrate with other people. Wow, it, that's a form of jealousy. Psychologists call this the focusing illusion. One source I read said the theory suggests that we compare our lives to others, and we focus on the small details and assume that if small details were different, then we would be happier. So we base our happiness based on what someone else may have that we desire that we just can't seem to have, and that's a form of jealousy. Maybe, we've, maybe some of us have felt that way. And it kind of leads to my next area of jealousy is when we're more conscious of what others have, and we're not grateful for what we have. See, jealousy and gratitude, jealousy and thanksgiving can't dwell in our hearts at the same time. If we're jealous of someone else, if we're jealous for what other, another person may have, and we're thinking about our deficiencies and maybe what we don't have, we're not grateful. We're jealous. We're envious. And those two can't coexist at the same time. We, our, our gratitude is just, and that leads to my third. And that is when enough isn't enough is a sign of jealousy in our heart. We may have all of our needs met, but I still don't have my truck. (laughs) I may have a great place to, to hang out at my house and enjoy my home, but I don't have what my neighbor has. I had a great vacation at Door County, but it wasn't Jamaica. It wasn't the Caribbean. We have enough. We have our needs met, but when enough isn't enough, and we have these comparisons, that is a jealous heart, and jealousy is a thief. And this is what Asaph is talking about. He was envious of the wicked. I want what they have. Totally disillusioned with the blessings that God had given him. I have, he had what he needed. He he had relationship with God. He had his needs met, but it wasn't what they had. And we see this crisis of jealousy in Asaph's heart. And this crisis of jealousy leads to another crisis in his life, and that's a crisis of Doubt. This is when it begins to get real for Asaph. Notice what he says in verses 13 and 14. He says, All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. See, Asaph continues to look at his own circumstances. He continues to look at the circumstances of the wicked. It's not making sense, and now doubt begins to invade his heart. And he actually begins to question is Serving God, of pursuing righteousness, of pursuing holiness, has actually even been worth it. Notice he says, "All in vain have I kept my heart clean." I, is, this, is this point? Like, has this been worth it? Has this meant anything to me, or, or have I been wasting my time? Because not not only is he saying, not only have I not been prospering, I actually have trouble in my life. This is what Asaph is saying. They're prospering. They're wicked. And I'm following the Lord. My, I'm trying to pursue holiness. And not only am I not prospering, I actually have troubles in my life. He says, I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. This must have been a really dark time for Asaph. This was a really difficult time for Asaph. He says, well, maybe this is just being done in vain. Simply Asaph is doubting whether serving God has increased any meaningful purpose in his life. Maybe, maybe this isn't worth it. That's a desperate place for Asaph to find himself. And it speaks to where he is emotionally. We, we feel this in the text. He's in a really dark place emotionally. He is, he is just having a rough spot. I think we can describe Asaph's emotions as probably self-pity, self-pity and despair. Self-pity and despair. This is what an unrighteous perspective creates. It creates a crisis of jealousy, creates a crisis of doubt with emotions of self-pity and despair. It also highlights kind of the arrogance of Asaph's heart as well. Because really what he is asking is, what have I gotten out of serving God? What have I gotten out of following God? And wrongly, at this point, he kind of comes to the conclusion, maybe nothing. Maybe this has all been in vain. Maybe it's been pointless. That's that's devastating. What's interesting, though, is I don't think Asaph's the only person who has ever felt this way. I don't think Asaph's the only Christ followers had such a crisis in their life that they just thought, man, maybe this is just not worth it for me. Maybe this is just too hard. Maybe there's some of us in the room right now who feel this way. This is just really hard. The crises. That you're going through, the crisis that you're currently going through is just like this is just harder than I anticipated. And maybe you come to the same conclusion as Asaph. Maybe this is just pointless. I think if we're honest, we've been in a crisis like this before. This is just hard. I don't know if I can go for it. I don't know if I can take another step. I just want the round to be over. I just want the bell ring. I just want this to be over. And in moments like this, it's very easy to what one writer calls give up-itis. I didn't make this up. This is actually an article that I read. The author says, in World War II Korea and Vietnam, many prisoners died from a condition doctors nicknamed give up-itis. The prisoners faced grim conditions, had no apparent prospect of freedom, and some of them became demoralized and deeply mired in despair. After a while, they turned apathetic. They refused to eat or drink spent their time staring blankly into space, drained of hope, these POWs gradually wasted away and just died. Now, being a, in a prisoner of war, that's, that's tragic and that's difficult, and I can't imagine the, that, how that feels to be a POW. But as I thought about this, I'm wondering how many believers feel the same way. Drained of hope. This is pointless. I just want this to be over. And we have the same kind of spiritual give-up-itis in our own heart where it's just, I just want this to be over. We find ourselves with the same emotions of hopelessness, despair, self-pity. If that's you today, my heart goes out to you because that is hard. That is so, so hard. And I want you you also to know that you're not alone. You're not alone in that. Think about where we're at in this Psalm 73. This is Asaph inspired by the holy spirit to write sacred scripture and he's saying is this even worth it you're not alone asaph wasn't alone and we also have to remember that asaph also said that his feet only nearly slipped he had almost stumbled he had taken some shots in the chin he had, he had experienced some gut punches like he had never felt before. And he says, I did not go down. I did not, I did not hit the mat. I, I wobbled a little bit, but I did not go down. And as we begin to, to, to trace the rest of his progression, we see that this man of crisis now becomes a man of confession. Let's read what he says in verses 15 through 22. He says, if I had said, I will speak to I would have betrayed the generation of your children, but when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly you set them, he's talking about the wicked now, truly you set them in slippery places, you make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakes, Oh Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms." When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in the heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. See, what, what Asaph is doing here is he's making some confessions. He is, he's beginning to change his perspective. His heart, his focus is changing, and now he's making some confessions to the Lord. And I think there are two confessions that we see in this portion of Scripture. I want to start in verse 22, then hop back up to verse 16 to 21. Because the first thing that I want to talk about is Asaph's confession of sinful behavior. We, we see this in verse 22. Notice what he says. He says, I was brutish, ignorant, and beast-like towards you. He had acted like an animal towards God. When Asaph was envying the wicked, when he was despising his station in life and wanting another station, he says, God, I was, I was brutish. I was beast-like towards you. And this word brutish, bayar, in the original language means foolish or stupid. He said, God, I was so foolish to think this way. I was so foolish to have these thoughts towards you. God, I can't believe that I had these thoughts towards you. And, And he says, I was like an animal before you. That is a powerful confession. That is honest and raw. Asaph didn't pull any punches. He didn't try to minimize or justify his sin. He didn't, he didn't try to hide this at all. He didn't cast blame. He owned every ounce of his sin. And he says, Lord, I was like an animal towards you. And this is striking. This is, it reminds me of my dogs at home. I have two dogs at home. One's an 11-year-old Schnorky. She's a Yorkie-Schnauzer mix. We get along okay. She's not my favorite, but we get along. And then I have a three-year-old Springer doodle. He's an English Springer-Spaniel poodle mix. And I like him a lot. He is, he is my puppy. We are We are friends. But the thing is, I did not realize at, as a 38-year-old man, I would become a butler to a dog. But that's exactly what it is. He's, he's very selfish and self-centered. He doesn't really care about my needs. I think he loves me. But when it's time to eat, he wants to eat. When he wants his belly rubbed, he'll come over and he'll ask to have his belly rubbed or his head rubbed. And if I'm not doing it, he'll push his snout under my hand and try and, try and make myself pet him. And then not only that, as a puppy, we trained him to ring a bell anytime he needed to go outside. So literally, he rings a bell, and guess what I do? I serve him. I take him outside. I'm literally a butler to a dog, and he has no regard for my need whatsoever. If I'm sitting in the easy chair trying to relax for the day, he doesn't care. He'll ring the bell. I don't care, Dad. I got to go outside, right? And then I, I make him food, and I take it to him. I set it in front of him. Like, and then I take him on walks, and we play fetch, and I love him. I think he loves me, but he's an animal. He's self-centered. It's all about his own need. And this is what Asaph is saying. God, I I have demanded that you serve me, and I have been ringing my spiritual bell, and you have not answered. And I was wrong. I think as believers, we do the same thing. We ring our spiritual bells and say, God, where are you? I'm demanding this from you. Where are you? And just like Asaph is confessing to the Lord that it is wrong and sinful, I think we need to make confessions of that. God, you are not at my beck and call. <laughs> you are not my, my benevolent butler who serves me when I demand you serve me. God, you are gracious and merciful and loving towards me, and you gift me with everything that I have, but I can demand nothing from you. And Asaph is saying, Lord, that's sinful and wrong. I think we need to make that same confession And a a second confession that I see, this is going back to 16 through 21, is Asaph is making a confession of God's justice. He finally comes to the realization that you know what? The wicked aren't getting away with anything. The wicked aren't going to just slip under, under the sight of God. This is not going to happen. There will be a day when the wicked receive a reward for the deeds done in this life and judgment will be their reward. And it will be far worse than they could ever imagine. Notice what Asaph says. He says the wicked are going to falter ruin. They're going to be destroyed in a moment. They will be utterly swept away with terrors or or calamity. God will not allow the sins of the wicked to go unpunished. And so now we feel this this light breaking into the darkness of Asaph's heart. His, His perspective is beginning to shift. God has not forgotten about him. God has not somehow fallen asleep on the job. He remembers God is good to those who are pure in heart. And notice where Asaph was reminded of this profound truth in verse 17. It was in the sanctuary of God. This is the place where Asaph had faithfully served as a worship, think of it as a worship pastor. This is where he would pour out his praises to the people of God, singing worship. And now he's in the same place that he had performed ministry, he is now receiving ministry in his own heart. As he hears the songs belted out across the sanctuary of God's people, hope begins to well up in his heart. As he hears the word of God faithfully proclaimed and God's name made great, hope begins to grow in his heart. Which kind of leads me to another side point here. When we're facing a crisis, we can't do it alone. See, one of the big deceptions of a crisis is it will convince you that you're better off just being alone. Sit at home, wrestle with your thoughts, trying to figure this out on your own. You don't need anybody, they'll never understand. It's too deep. They just won't get it. And maybe that's true to a degree. Right? Each, each trial is unique, and it's individual, and it's, it's our own. So maybe we don't understand all the nuances, but I think there's, a, there's a, a power that comes when we are walking through a crisis in community. This is what Asaph does. He still goes to church. I'm going to the sanctuary of God. And he hears the worship of the people, and it changes his heart. And we see the progression continue He was a man in crisis. He was a man of confession, and now we see the transition of a man of contentment. Notice how this psalm concludes. He says, nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward, you receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell all of your works. This sounds like a completely different man, doesn't it? This can't possibly be the same writer in verse 1 and what we see at the end of the psalm. It has to be different, right? It's, it's, It's totally different. He is a man that is content. Notice the ways in that he, he says, God, I, I want to I be continually with you. You hold me by my right hand. God, you are with me. Asaph even confesses again that there is nothing that I want but you, O oh God. Think about that in contrast to what Asaph wanted at the beginning. What did Asaph want at the beginning of the psalm? I want what the wicked have. They got the nice truck. They got the nice destination vacation. They are making bank when it comes to their salary. I want what they have. And now, at the end of this psalm, as he, as he sees God for who he is, he remembers God's nature and character. He says, I just want you. I don't, I don't need anything else, God. I just want you. Notice the stark contrast. I just need you. I just want you. It reminds me a lot of what Jesus told his disciples in Luke chapter nine. We remember Luke 9, 23 when Jesus says, for anyone who wants to follow me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. But we also see in verse number 57 and 58 that Jesus says, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, the son of man has no place to lay his head. What is Jesus telling his disciples? When you follow me, it's not gonna be a life of luxury. In fact, there's going to be trouble, there's going to be stresses in your life, there's going to be suffering, and at the end of the day, I have to be enough for you, because I'm all you have. Jesus has to be enough. When it comes to us walking through this life here in the 21st century, the the, the truth is the same. Jesus has to be enough. Is Jesus enough? See, in, in the West, particularly in the U.S., we can arrange our lives to where Jesus doesn't have to be enough for us. Right? We can buy all the nice things. We can have all the luxuries. And so Jesus doesn't have to be enough. But if we go visit a third world country, it's a little bit different. This is why I love short term missions so much. You see a different perspective. I had the privilege of being in Indonesia just a few weeks ago, talking to church planters who are planning churches in some of the most hostile parts of the whole world. And one of the most convicting things, it just wrecked me, was how they prayed. I described it to my wife as this way. It prayed as if, it, it, it prayed as if Jesus was their only hope. It, it, they, they prayed as if Jesus was the only option. And that convicted me so much in my own heart because I'm not sure I pray like that all the time. I'm not sure my, my life is always set up in a place where I have to have soul dependence on the Lord. Now, I'm grateful for all the gifts God has given me. But I wonder from my own heart if I'm too lenient on God's gifts and not the giver himself. And see, Asaph comes to this conclusion, that like, God, you're all that I need. You're all that I desire. You're all that I want. I want you so much. You're my strength. You're my shield. You're my refuge. You are everything. And we notice Asaph taking off his unrighteous lens, and now he has on a righteous lens. And this leads to deep contentment in his life. This is a hope-filled passage of Scripture. Because not only does it chronicle the dark time that Asaph went through and how he overcame it and the conclusion that he comes to, but this is a commentary of our lives as well. If you're like me, as you're reading Psalm 73... You're probably thinking about the ebbs and flows of your own life, the journeys you've gone through, the, the peaks and valleys, the, the good days, bad days, the dark days, light days. You've you felt that, and you, you've noticed this progression in your life, because we've been in a crisis. You've had moments of confession. You've, you've identified with contentment. And I think this is relevant for all of us. We know what this is like. We've been through these journeys. So as we think about concluding our time together. Let me just offer three takeaways. So these, these takeaways aren't due actions. These aren't, these aren't actionable items. These are more postures and reminders for us. But the first takeaway that I want us to think of is this. Number one, crises will come into your life. Crises will come into your life. At some point, on some level, you will walk through a crisis. It won't, it won't be just like ASAP. It may not be just like ASAP, but it'll be real. It'll be painful. and It'll be one of the chapters in your story. I think we see all over scripture that we can expect trouble. We can expect tribulation. We can expect suffering in our life. We know this to be true. We need to be reminded crises will come into our life. But at least to my second application point, which is crises don't have the final say. While the darkness may be thick and the journey may feel long, the crisis does not have the final say. And this psalm gives us hope for that. If crisis had the final say then I don't think Asaph says my feet had nearly slipped or I had nearly stumbled. Or he doesn't come to the conclusion that God is good, but that is the conclusion he comes to under the inspiration of the Spirit. He nearly stumbled and he encountered God in his sanctuary. He remembered the goodness of God. He remembered the, the justice and mercy of God. He sang worship songs. He remembered God's affection towards his people. He remembered that God is greater than any crisis he could ever possibly go through. And so to those who are walking through a crisis, maybe even right now, it doesn't have the final say. I think the Lord will teach you some valuable lessons and he will refine you through that. And he will draw you closer to himself and he will sanctify you through these struggles and through these trials but they don't have the final say. We follow the model of Asaph. And then finally make God your portion forever. This is what Asaph says, right? He is God is his portion forever. Mean that God will be his security forever, his strength forever, his source of joy forever. Because Asaph has come to the conclusion that nothing else will satisfy like God. Nothing will bring joy like God. Nothing will bring peace like God. Nothing will provide goodness like God. Nothing will show mercy like God. Nothing will show kindness like God. Only God can do that. Only God can reach into those areas of our heart and be our portion. Only God can do that. Only God can be your portion forever. So how do you experience that? I think we experience that in two ways. For those of us who maybe haven't believed in Christ as Savior and Lord, maybe that's where you start to. That would be a great place to start. By believing that Jesus died for your sin, the, the problem you could do nothing about. Jesus became a man. He lived among us sinlessly undoing the sin of Adam, then he died on a cross, paying the penalty for our sin, was buried in a tomb and rose again three days later so that those who believe in him will have everlasting life. Just believe in the finished work of Christ. Trust in him as Lord and Savior of your life. And the chaos in your life spiritually, Christ replaces that with his love and peace. And for those of us who have been following Jesus for a long time, it means making him our portion forever by by passionately pursuing a growing relationship with Him, pursuing with intensity a relationship with Christ, being in the Word daily, praying daily, talking to people about the Lord, surrounding yourself with Christian community. We're going to do what we can to keep making steps towards Christ, growing in progressive sanctification, living in a way that honors God every single day. We make God our portion forever. Crises will come into our life. They don't have the final say because God is our portion. Let's pray together. Father, thanks so much for this time. Thank you that we can just take a few moments to look at a psalm that um, has moments of darkness and moments of despair and moments of tragedy, but God ends gloriously with worship, ends with a new focus on who you are ends with a perspective not focused on the trouble or the crisis, but focused on Christ. And God, I pray that as we think about our own stories and the journeys that we're on and maybe even the crisis we're going through, that we can follow a similar model to Asaph, where our hearts can begin to change and we can lose sight of the struggle and focus on who you are. So, Lord, help us take this journey and these steps well. Lead us with your spirit. Allow your word to, to be our guiding, our guiding light, Lord. And God, through this, may you receive glory in all of our lives. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.